Okay, so I also get to transition us to reading Romans 14, 13 through 23. So if you would please stand, we'll read the word of God together. And I'm going to use the pulpit because I can't have my Bible open. Okay. Okay, Romans 14, 13 through 23. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is Good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Please remain standing. Thank you, Becca. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in here be pleasing in your sight. We ask it and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing, guys. Go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> hey, and I'm going to add my welcome to Pastor Brian's. If I haven't met you before, I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. We are glad you are here. In fact, we would love to know more about you, to know that you are here. There's a QR code on the inside of the bulletin right next to sort of a little explanation of who we are as a church and what matters to us most. Um, you can get to our welcome card through that and let us know that you are here. And maybe even we could get together and get coffee or something. Well, I don't drink coffee, but I'd get tea. Black tea is what I do. And then one last thing, too, just because it's fresh on my mind. Um, my new friend Revan this morning did this beautiful sermon notebook, and it reminds me to tell you guys that for older kids that are staying in for the sermon, there are the sermon notebooks in the back table, or not back table, but the back banister, and I just went and reloaded our Dutch Brothers gift cards, so we are locked and loaded with those $10 gift cards. Uh, remember kids, those are waiting for you with uh, some sermon notebook fill-outs. So, where do we start with this text? Man, there is so much, so much to talk about. In fact, um, kind of, uh, this is sort of spoiling the surprise, but what I'll say at the end is there's going to be a part two to this next week um, because there's so much to get to. But for today, I, I thought that maybe the way in, kind of the doorway to begin with all of this is a reflection on liberty and how important liberty is to our sense of identity and being in our culture. This began to sort of percolate for me because I'm reading this book right now. It's called Rubicon. It's a book that is a history on the, the final days of the Roman Republic. And the thing that struck me most, yeah, you see some coins up here. Uh, the coin on the left, this is from late Roman Republic era. It says Libertas. 
Interestingly, the coin on the right says Brutus, which it's believed that Brutus, uh, the senator who was responsible for betraying Julius Caesar, is the one who minted it. Um, But libertas is the Latin word for liberty. And it was on so many of the coins and insignias and crests of the Roman Republic because at core, liberty was what it meant to be a Roman citizen. It didn't matter your circumstances. You could be the poorest of the poor or the richest of the rich. You could be an athlete. You could be a politician. You could be a traveling merchant. It didn't matter. If you were a Roman citizen, the most important thing about you is that you were free. Free to choose your own rulers. Free to choose your own life path or career, we would maybe call it. Free to to leave Rome if you wanted or stay in Rome if you wanted. You were free to do so many things that the surrounding city-states of that era and region wouldn't allow for. They were despots and tyrants and kings and leaders. And, you know, ultimately Rome became that in the empire. But at this time of the Republic... Liberty was the core of what it meant to be a Roman citizen. And that is a legacy that has been passed down long past the days of the Roman Republic and filtered its way into to thinking and thought and government for hundreds of years afterward. There are a lot of customs of the Roman Empire that are long gone. Excuse me, not the Roman Empire, the Roman Republic that are long gone. But this ideal of freedom and liberty being the most important thing about a person, that has remained. It's actually the most enduring legacy that Rome has given the world after it. I I mentioned this morning up in paradise, I was just sort of going through like what are all the different ways that we see this. Renaissance literature and thought and philosophy. The, the revolutions of the 1700s and 1800s in Europe, and most importantly, or at least to us most importantly, the Declaration of Independence, the founding of our very own country. I'm not expecting you to read the fine print there, by the way. Just a little picture. I got this from some weird Nicolas Cage movie. I don't know what it's is. In the Declaration of Independence, where we sort of stake our claim of who we are as a people, what our country is all about, what it's founded on, Thomas Jefferson writes this, that it is the inalienable right of every human being for what? Three things. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you see how the idea at this point has kind of blossomed even further than what the Roman Republicans would say. For them, it was the Roman citizen who had liberty as the core of their being. For Thomas Jefferson, it was every human being has those inalienable rights. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this is why you can be driving down the road in Chico on any given day and just see somebody with a bumper sticker that just says, freedom. That's it, just freedom. (laughs) And we all know what that means. Like, yeah, freedom. Uh, That's why Braveheart is like all of our favorite movies, right? Freedom! At the end. We get that. It is so essential to what it means to be an American citizen. We are a people who are free. And everything in life is meant to serve that ideal of freedom. It's meant to protect it, to cultivate it, to found it if it's not there. That's just part of the drinking water, part of the DNA of being an American citizen, I would say. But 
It's also the reason why this text that we read has the potential to be such a poke in the eye. Has the potential to really, really make us mad. Because if you were paying attention to this text as Becca read it, you would have noticed that it had the audacities to suggest that your freedom is not the most important thing about you. It is not the core of your identity or your being. In fact, your freedom might have moments where it needs to be curbed or limited or reined in for the sake of something greater, the love of Christ. Both the love of Christ that we receive from him in the gospel, but then also the love of Christ that we show to brothers and sisters in the faith because we're all united in one body. In the kingdom of God, that is the most important thing about you. That is the core of your identity. That is what defines you. And even though liberty and freedom are precious, blood-bought privileges that Jesus has given you as a believer, your liberty is not the end-all, be-all, but rather it's meant to serve the higher end, the end of love, showing the love of Christ to your brothers and sisters in the faith. Now, all of this comes from a very specific situation. Um, we're taking this principle out of this, basically this problem, this debate, this turmoil that was happening in the Roman church. Brian preached about this last week. I so, so, so hope that you were here um, to listen to Brian's sermon because it was really good and he did such a good job of kind of setting the landscape about what's going on with this, this clash in Rome. So check that out. It's online at our website um, if you didn't get a chance to listen to it last week. Um, but then today I'm going to give a little bit of a recap. I'm not going to do as nearly as good a job as Brian did, but I'm going to try my best to just sort of give a quick overview because we're going to need that. If you missed last week, you're going to have no idea what this is talking about. It kind of it picks up where the text last week left off. So here's my little recap as far as what's going on and why it is that this clash is happening in the church. The church in Rome is kind of like the church in Chico, California. It's diverse. And by that, I don't mean the way that we usually use diversity, which we're principally talking about like nationality or race or ethnicity, but rather the diversity of the church in Rome came more from the fact that people were coming from different cultural contexts with habits and rules and regulations that they had grown up with. So you've got people coming from Greek background, from pagan religions, and then you've also got people that were coming from uh, Judaism. In fact, most of them didn't really think that they were leaving Judaism for a new religion. They thought they were, Jesus is the Messiah. This is what it means to be a Jew, is to follow him. And yet, they were bringing with them, if they had grown up in Judaism, this kind of long list of rules and regulations and requirements that had come from the Old Testament, but then had come from some rabbinical teaching as well. And they were rules about things like what you ate, what you could eat and what you couldn't eat, what was clean and what was unclean. Rules about how to 
wash your hands and your body before you prepared food. Uh, rules about table fellowship and who you could have table fellowship with. Rules even about certain days that were feast days that were supposed to be observed in a very specific way. Th that's just the tip of the iceberg of all the rules and regulations that a Jewish believer was coming into the faith with. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is they're being told that in Jesus... The fulfillment of all those things has finally arrived. They're like shadows, but now that Jesus is here, the real thing is on the scene. So those shadows that were meant to point to him are no longer binding on us, no longer require our meticulous uh, obedience to them because now we're free in Christ. The real thing has finally arrived. I can eat or not eat. I can celebrate this feast or not celebrate this feast. I have the freedom to decide on my own. But not everybody was quick to understand that. And many of the believers that had come from this Jewish background were still hanging on to those rules and regulations and refusing to let them go. Paul, in the passage that Brian preached on last week, has a, a kind of a, a name for people in this group that's going to sound real bad at first. But hear me out. He calls them the weak. The weak in faith. But when he says that, he's not meaning that as a, a mean-spirited, pejorative statement. What he means by weak is that these are brothers and sisters who fully believe the gospel just like we do, but they haven't yet connected the dots fully about what Christ has purchased for them. They have yet to fully see the ramifications of the gospel and how it's given them freedom in ways that they haven't even contemplated yet. So in Paul's mind, the weak in faith are not deficient, like de facto deficient, but rather they're just a little sluggish in seeing the fullness of what Jesus has purchased for them. But they're going to get there. It just might take some time. It'll take patience from their brothers and sisters around them. And it will take them willing to kind of look into the gospel, to listen to gospel preaching, and to slowly but surely begin to see, oh yeah, I have freedom that I'm not living in right now. Now, I, I told the folks up in paradise this morning, I really sympathize with the weak in faith. Because just imagine you're, you know, I'm, uh, should I say my age? Yeah, I'm 24. And for 24 years of my life, actually 39, um, I have been meticulously following these regulations about what to eat and what to serve and how to do it. And then all of a sudden there is this seismic shift in what those things mean and the priority of those things. And it happens almost overnight. It would take me some time to shift gears. It would take me some time to actually sort of wrap my head around this, this huge change that's happened. And I would hope that the people around me would have patience of knowing that I'm not going to go zero to 100 in like a snap. But they would walk with me carefully and patiently, even if it's frustrating to them. Sadly, this is not the thing that was happening in Rome, the, the careful, patient walking with a brother weak in the faith that was not happening. In fact, there was a lot of frustration and a lot of impatience. And the quote-unquote weak in the faith were actually s sort of condemning 
the people that were living in their freedom, they were saying, that's disgusting. You're eating that? You're not celebrating this feast day? What are you doing? And then vice versa, the strong in the faith were looking at them and being like, I am tired of putting up with you. You're judging everything and you shouldn't be. You're not living in the freedom that Christ has given you. I'm washing my hands of it. That was kind of the situation that was happening here. And sadly, this beautiful little church, the church in Rome, probably even smaller than our gathering here tonight, was being torn apart because of debates over what to put on the menu. As crazy as that seems. Now, this passage, Romans 14, gives us a lot of good food for thought. That was not intentional. But a lot of stuff for thought when it comes to how it is that we address this disunity, how we bring the gospel to bear. The main thing it teaches us is what Brian preached about last week, which just a a little reminder for you, he showed us how Jesus is Lord of both the weak in faith and the strong in faith. He has welcomed both groups and therefore we are called to welcome one another. And that also, if Jesus is Lord of all, it means that we're not gonna answer to one another. I, as the weak in faith, aren't going to answer to the strong. I answer to the Lord Jesus, and they answer to him as well. Jesus, as the Lord of all of us, is so key to understanding how we navigate this division and bring the gospel to bear on it. But the text that we read this week adds another element, and it's the one that we started with tonight. All that talk about the Roman Republic and the Declaration of Independence, the new thought that we're given in this second half of the chapter is... Liberty isn't the core of who you are. The love of Christ is. And your liberty is called to serve the purpose of love, not the other way around. Now notice, this is a command, or command's probably not the right word there. This is an encouragement principally to the quote-unquote strong in faith. The people living in liberty, the people that realize they can eat what they want to and not have a heavy conscience about it. It's those strong believers that need to realize that exercising their liberty at the expense of hurting their brother isn't worth it. In fact, it's really harmful and bad. And it's almost as if the Bible at this point is is congratulating them and saying, yes, You're growing, you're maturing in your faith, you're seeing the full ramifications of the gospel. Amen, amen, amen. But if you think that exercising your liberty is worth harming your brother or sister, is worth being a stumbling block to them, you might not be as mature as you think you are. Think of Jesus. He's the one who prizes love above his liberty, right? He's the one that did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he, he, he lowered himself, humbled himself, taking the form of a slave, a servant, and offering himself up to death on the cross. Why? His liberty was serving his love for his people, his love for God the Father. And that love is the thing that purchased your freedom. That's what bought you this freedom in the first place. And so the Bible's saying, you've got this freedom that Jesus through his love has given to you. Why would you ever use it 
to make a brother or sister in the faith who's weaker than you fall on their face and stumble. That ain't right. That ain't the gospel. That isn't Jesus. Use your liberty for the cause of love, not the other way around. Let's look in the text at some verses that make this very clear. I think I've got a few up here on the screen. Yeah, verse 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. There's that principle, right? That love is at the core, not liberty. Verse 19. So then, let us pursue the things that make for peace and mutual upbuilding. Not let us pursue the things that we're all free to do, but rather the things that in common give peace and mutual upbuilding. In verse 21, it's kind of more in a prohibition statement. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Again, we come back to this statement of what's more important? My declaration of independence, uh, God-given, Christ-purchased liberty and freedom. That is important, no doubt about it. But that takes a back seat to the more principal thing, walking in love. The love of Christ that he's shown you and the love of Christ that now you get to show those around you. Now, I want to finish our time. I know I just have a few more minutes left. I, I, I want to finish. I, I, hmm. Yeah, verse 21, it says this. Anything that causes your brother to stumble. Here's my question. How does my eating or drinking, exercising my liberty, make my brother stumble? I mean, I, I can imagine that it might annoy them or frustrate them or, you know, make them upset with me. But, like, causing them to stumble, that's biblical language for making them fall into sin. Jesus gives great warnings about not causing people to stumble. It's better to tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown into a river, he says. So causing them to stumble, giving harm to them, hurting them, I don't understand really how my freedom and choices could literally hurt them. And that's what the Bible's saying here. We, we talked about the stumbling part already. I think, Nancy, you can go to the next slide. We talk, at first it says, you know, not to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of the brother. And that, you know, causes them to fall down. But then check this out. Last part of verse 15. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Destroy. Talk about just, you know, upping the ante. And then go to the next slide if you would. Yeah, verse 20. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. There it is again. How is my eating and drinking destroying my brother or sister? Here's how. It's destroying them because it has the potential to push them into doing things that their conscience doesn't allow for. And therefore, causing them to do things that they think is wrong, and therefore for them it kind of is. This is where it gets very, come back to me if I lost you already, because this is where it gets a little trippy, okay? The Bible is, whew, it's challenging us here. Check this out, verse 14. I know, this is Paul speaking, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Like talking about food, there is no food that will condemn you when you eat it. Pork, shellfish, shrimp, it's clean. The Lord has made it clean. I know 
and am persuaded that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. What? That is wild. Do you realize what that's just saying? That the, the moral status of an action that you take is in part dependent on what you believe about what you were doing. And if somebody who has a weak conscience, is weak in faith, is convinced that eating these foods that are clean, but if they're convinced that they're not clean, then if they did it anyways, they would be in sin. This goes for anything you can think of. I mean, the most, like, morally neutral thing possible. Riding a tractor. What if somebody were to say, you know what, riding tractors is sinful and bad. Their conscience was burdened about that for some reason. I'm coming up with a ridiculous example on purpose, guys, all right? And we would all say, like, that's crazy. Who would think that riding a tractor is wrong? They do. They are sincerely convinced of that. And if we push them into doing it, we would push them into sin. Because they are willfully going against something that they've decided in their heart, in their mind, in their spirit is wrong. The last verse that we read says this, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever. If I do not have faith and confidence that it is a God-honoring righteous act, but if instead I am convinced that it is sinful and unrighteous, if I'm prodded into doing it and going against my conscience... I've sinned against the Lord. Whoa. <laughs> I don't know if you're anything like me, that just kind of makes your head explode a little bit. Now, there's also another piece of this too. That is how something that is clean or good or right can all of a sudden become sinful if it's used in a destructive way. So now I want you to look, I believe it's verse 20. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. There we go again, everything is clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So now, <laughs> riding tractors ain't wrong, is it? But if your brother is convinced that it is and you're like, Man, that's stupid. Watch this. I'm going to get on the tractor and ride it. You come on up with me. Let's ride. Let's ride. And you prod him and you push him and you push him. And finally he says, all right, I don't think this is correct, but I'm going to do it anyways. You all of a sudden have just made riding tractors sinful and wrong. Because you've used your freedom for that in a destructive way that's walked your brother into sin. And here we are, both in the field, having to bow our knees in repentance before the Lord because we rode the tractor. <laughs> you, you can, uh, I mean, the tractor thing is just stupid. I don't know why I came, did that one, but that's what's making me laugh here. But the ramifications are powerful about what it is that we need to be mindful of and what happens when we prize liberty over love. When we do that, we're walking a dangerous path of maybe being able to turn some things that are morally neutral 
and the things that truly do trip up and destroy a brother can end up tripping up us too because we used it to be destructive. I felt like maybe I tried to bring this home with an example, um, kind of a silly one, not quite as bad as the tractor thing, but, you know. It's about uh, me and Brian at a dinner party. I don't know if we call it a dinner party. It's just you and me. It's more like a date, Brian. <laughs> but don't tell Angie. She'll be jealous. So I have Brian over to my house to eat. And, you know, we're, we're getting this nice, good, warm weather. You know, I kind of wish spring would have lasted for longer. But it looks like we're heading straight into summer now. But I'm from the south. The thing that you do in the summertime is you cook up a low country boil. Y'all know what that is? That's what that is. Corn, shrimp, crawdads, sausage, potatoes, a lot of Old Bay seasoning, lemon. And like I've actually, the best low country boil I've ever had was in Panama City Beach, Florida. This, it, we, we had this kiddie pool, like the little plastic kiddie pools, filled it with this and just cooked it. It was awesome. So I want to do this at my house. Uh, believe it or not, I have cooked this at my house before uh, just for me to eat on. But this time I'm going to have Brian over. It's summertime. This is what I want to eat. This is part of my identity as a southerner. But Brian doesn't eat shellfish. And not because he's allergic. Brian doesn't eat shellfish because he was doing a devotional in the Old Testament. And he was reading about how those are unclean foods for the Israelites. And he's done a 180 on what he can eat now and has decided he's not eating shellfish anymore because God told us not to in the Bible. Now, of course, I'm like, Brian, you're a pastor. You should know better. <laughs> we went to the same seminary, didn't we? Like, how did this happen? And so part of me is just like, what? And then part of me is frustrated because I really want to eat that when he comes over. And part of me is just like, Brian, come on, man. Like, you have freedom in Christ that I want you to be able to participate in and to enjoy and to know. And so I've got some options available to me. First option is I just say, you know what? I'm going to sort of shake Brian out of this false assumption he has. And I'm going to do it by serving him up a big old bowl of that. And when he sits down, I'm going to say, hey, man, it's my house. It's my table. You're my brother. I don't want to see you persist in this era, so bon appetit, right? <laughs> and I'm just trusting that the, the, the odor, uh, not the odors, the uh, aromas, there we go, <laughs> maybe odor, <laughs> are going to just draw them in. It's going to be great. And, you know, Brian, because he's a nice, kind, generous house guest, you know, is going to say, okay, fine. I'll eat it. But that whole time, his conscience is going to be burdened that he's doing something that's wrong and that God told him not to. Now, I could applaud myself at this point and be like, freedom, I did it. I embraced my freedom. It's my house. It, it, it's the food I wanted to eat. I know from the Bible that we are free to do this and that Brian is too. So I, whoo, throw me a parade. I champion freedom tonight. But what I also did is I just walked Brian, whom I love as my friend and my brother, headlong into sin. Because remember, we read that passage. If he thinks it's unclean and does it anyways, he has 
walked into sin. And then, of course, I've condemned myself because I've used my freedom as sort of this tool to get Brian to do something that his conscience wouldn't allow for. We're both (laughs) in need of repentance after this delicious meal. So what could I have done instead? There's a handful of things, sort of a gradation of it, but we'll start with the easiest. What if I cooked up some of this low country boil in a kiddie pool, but also made sure that I went out of my way to create and prepare a meal for Brian that I knew he could eat without a heavy conscience. And I say, brother, I specifically made this for you because I know you're kind of wrestling with what's going on here with shellfish and what God said in the Old Testament. That's one way. But I actually could crank it up a little bit more. What if I just bypassed the kiddie pool altogether and the low country boil altogether? And I said, you know what, I'm going to save that for another night when Brian's not with me. But for tonight, knowing where he is, knowing what he's struggling with, I'm going to serve something else. I'm not going to even bring before his conscience this question about eating or him needing to watch me and my family do that. Like, I want to accommodate where he is with the hope that it'll be the beginning of discussions to slowly and surely be able to walk more and more towards freedom, but not by me forcing it down his throat when he's not ready. Now, some people take it even further. Some people will go so far as to say, never eat this again. A stranger might see you in a restaurant eating it and it will cause them to stumble. Or Brian might see me coming out of Safeway with a bag full of shellfish and be like, oh, what's he doing? I'm not so sure that's the heart of this passage. And the reason why is because that takes that personal love element out of the equation. I think there's a lot of personal table fellowship one-on-one going on here. And he's saying, don't in those contexts prize your freedom over love for the brother that you're sitting across the table from. Not necessarily, I am never going to do anything in my life that possibly could be misinterpreted or cause someone to stumble. That could get really, really uh, claustrophobic very quickly. But what it is asking me to do is to say, what would be most loving to Brian here? And even if it means curtailing some of my freedom, even if it means reining in and curbing my liberty to do what I want in my home I'm going to hold back for his sake now I want to make sure that we've got this clear you've heard me say it a few times but just, just to make sure you're not missing it my hope and expectation is that Brian doesn't always stay in that place of not eating shellfish That's not good or loving for anybody to remain static in this place of not living in their freedom. My hope is that he will grow, that he will understand, that he will embrace the full ramifications of the gospel. The point is, I am not going to hurry or harass him to get there quicker than his conscience allows. I'm going to walk with him in patience and in love and in forbearance with the hope that he's getting there, but at God's pace, not mine. I told you all at the beginning, there's going to be a part two of this. Because 
to me, I got to the end of all this and I realized I didn't have any more time, but what I really want to explore with you is what are some modern day examples of these questions, the weak, the strong, these debates over food. Most of us in here are, aren't debating over what you can eat or not eat, but we are debating over lots of other things. And I'm scared for next week because when you bring up 2023 United States of America things that we clash about, all of a sudden it goes from academic to hitting us in the heart or right between the eyes. Basically what I'm saying is a lot of y'all are going to be mad at me next week. <laughs> and I might get fired. But at least I'll go down in flames. Mm. Yeah, I'm over time already, guys, so let's pray. Father, bless this word to our understanding. I pray that our minds would continue to grapple with it even well after we leave here today. And that what we would be taking away is that the love of Christ is what is at the center of who we are. And that we wouldn't let anything else supersede that. It's in your name, the name of Christ, that we pray. Amen.